This podcast is produced by Whisper and Mutter. Hey, thanks for listening. I am conducting a research project of sorts. I am surveying you, my listeners, to learn more about you. This quick, anonymous survey will help shape the strategy, production, distribution, and sponsorship of the podcast. Can you please visit yizzyresearch.com to take the listener survey? Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Now, on to the show. You're listening to the Yizzy Research Podcast, the podcast for people who research people. You are listening to the voice of your host, Imani, UX researcher at and founder of the UX research company, Yizzy Research. I help organizations understand their users, and I coach aspiring and practicing UX researchers in their career journeys. In this episode, I speak with Babs. We met virtually at a UX researcher gathering and connected over our interest in research and helping aspiring researchers break the UX researcher job application code. In the first part of our conversation, Bab discusses defining ethnography as an approach and the signifier of her educational background, grounded theory, the importance of defining ethnography and other approaches and methodologies, understanding who you are empathizing towards when you claim to be an empathetic UX professional, empathy as a signaling term in the job-seeking process, how she applied to more than 100 UX researcher jobs when trying to break into the field, how networking in Atlanta got her a studio assistant role that led to a bona fide UX researcher role later, the importance of job titles when applying for UX researcher roles, and how this prevents you from being exploited, and lastly, why she avoids the word users despite being a UX researcher. In your LinkedIn bio, you describe yourself as an ethnographic sociologist. What is that? It's a good question. Um, And I do want to just add a caveat, if I may, about the word ethnography. Um, It's something that it's a term that people use a lot. Um, I've noticed online. Also, there are different kinds of trainings that go along with ethnography. So I appreciate level setting up front. Um, And the answer is ethnography is, for me, it's more of an approach. And I've seen other practitioners mention this as well. Um, Ethnography basically, well, for me, it signals my educational background. So I have a master's in qualitative ethnographic sociology. That was my concentration for a two-year master's. And uh, so when I talk about being an ethnographic sociologist, what I want to do is signal that I've had this sort of training. So ethnography and then sociology specifically as different than anthropology or performance studies or art history, which my background also includes. But ethnography essentially, I hope, signals this approach of grounded theory, which actually Brene Brown obviously super famous. She is, I would consider her work ethnographic, right? So she has this grounded theory approach where you collect data from observations and then you code the data and then you create theories and then you test those theories. So that's what grounded theory is. Uh, It's looking at the data, the data set, and it's coming up with a theory based on that. So not applying an external theory. That is what grounded theory approach would be and it's very ethnographic in practice so it's observing folks in context and and understanding what they're doing in context instead of making an outside judgment ethnography does have a very complex history uh, of course when uh, when outsiders go into a community and then they make the claim that they understand what's going on i want to be clear that for me ethnography is is i locate myself as an interpreter of sorts 
but in no way am I uh, the the expert on what's going on, or I I wouldn't be able you know to look at an in group and tell you oh this is definitely what they're doing it's I I want to de like unseat I want to unseat myself from that position of authority um which is when I studied ethnography that was a huge part of it is acknowledging yourself as a biased observer but still making the every effort that you possibly can to um to observe in a, in a neutral in context uh, as objective as possible context, while also realizing that's kind of impossible, if that makes sense. So ethnographic sociologists, I hope, convey some of that. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very academic in approach. Um, it's interesting to me to see how people are using the term ethnography right now in uh, in business, right? In, in UX, specifically, somebody that I think, if your listeners are interested in more um, learning more on like ethnographic sociology. Sam Ladner, Dr. Sam Ladner is a very uh, interesting writer and she's written some very accessible texts on it. So I'm happy that you mentioned that ethnography is more of an academic thing. And I'm also happy that you mentioned and explained grounded theory as well. Um, I, I appreciate you preface, prefacing your answer with a level set about what ethnography is, right? I remember like a few days ago, I was talking to someone who's interested in UX research and they asked me about my favorite methods. And I said, I love doing in-person research. Um, and I mentioned that I like doing field research, contextual inquiries. And the person asked, oh, like ethnography. And I was like, hmm, is it ethnography? <laughs> like, I wasn't really sure. It's not always clear what constitutes ethnography. And like you said, a lot of people, especially people who don't have an academic background like myself, sometimes we use the word ethnography and we may not be using it in the right context. So I'm happy that you mentioned that it does have a, it does have an academic uh, connotation to it because it definitely does. It's, it's a hot word. Um, I think people are using it in the same way that they're using empathy right now. Ethnography and empathy have this link to them, um, you know, in like in, pop culture right now and user experience specifically it's you want somebody you want to hire somebody who understands basically neutral observation techniques right hopefully and that you want somebody that can observe what the person actually wants outside of bias so folks are throwing these terms around of ethnography or empathy and it's something i'm very interested in understanding like what people actually mean uh, when they say ethnography. And when I talk about my practice, uh, ethnographic grounded theory, otherwise, I want to be sure that I define those terms when I mention them, because it does have different meanings, because people take it and run with it. And they can mean a lot of different things. So I think it's helpful when having conversations around methodology or approach that each person is able to explain what they're talking about. Um, it's something that I think is important too, even when you say, I'm an empathetic researcher, I'm an empathetic designer, asking the questions of who are you empathetic towards? Um, whose perspective are you considering? These sorts of questions. Mm, that is, yes. <laughs> like, who are you empathetic towards? I know when I was trying to break into UX research, I kept hearing the word empathy a lot. And I knew what empathy meant, but it seemed like, it almost seemed like it was not, I guess, a code word, like it meant something, but it meant something different in the context of UX research. And I, I appreciate that you, that you 
that you pose the question, right? Like rhetorically, who are you being empathetic towards? That's so important. You were talking about what ethnography is. You talked about the fact that having an academic background in ethnography is is important as well. And you mentioned that you have a master's in ethnographic sociology. Can you tell us more about that experience? Like, how did you go from studying ethnographic sociology at a master's level to becoming a UX researcher? Yeah, um, definitely. And then just to comment on what you mentioned, when, when you know, with this empathy discussion, is this definitely, a, it's a signaling term, right? You're signaling, I understand something that you're looking for, especially in the job seeking process. If you signal, I'm an empathetic person, right? It means something in this field. I've actually been conflicted on whether to use it or not because it's so, in my opinion, overused. But again, I think it comes back to explaining what that actually means and being able to uh, practice that, right? So not just saying it, but practicing it. So your question of um, ethnography and the academic context uh, how that maps on to, like, I guess, the UXR field, or user experience research field. Uh, it, so UX is actually something that was brought up to me by a friend. Uh, he and I go way back, and he introduced me to the concept of UX. And he said, hey, this is, this is a field that you don't need a PhD in, you know, our sociology and um, respective social science backgrounds would make us a really valuable asset into this. So I was like, okay, seems cool. Cause I have no idea what I'm going to do with a master's in sociology. Uh, in my field, it's not considered a terminal degree in many ways. You're not considered fully qualified in some respects, right? Even though I have, well, it's called a terminal master's. It wasn't part of a PhD program. Uh, so he actually had an undergrad, so he didn't want to go to grad school either. And so we lo we're looking into UX where we could both use our, our creative um, capacities. And I was able, while I was finishing my master's in sociology, I was able to take a couple UX classes um, at Ohio University. I have friends in the uh, visual communication department, Bizcom as it's known. And I took a couple, I took a UX class and I also took a data visualization class. Um, I audited those while my, while pursuing my master's in sociology. So I got a little bit of what I would consider practical skill to go along with my very in-depth training of qualitative uh, sociology and ethnography. So uh, I remember, and we've definitely talked about this before too, but like the jobs seeking process is very difficult. Um, I remember when I finished my master's coursework along with my UX and data viz, classes that I applied to more than 100 jobs, and I never heard back from a single one of them. Uh, not to say that I got it or didn't get it or anything. I just, it was complete radio silence. So that was very defeating for me for a long time. Um, and I just decided I would up and move to Atlanta because that's what I wanted, to, or that's where I wanted to be. And I was in Ohio pursuing my master's at Ohio University. And I just decided to move to Atlanta because I thought, well, there's a really, there's a really large chance that I could get a degree in tech, that I could work uh, it for the Veterans Administration. Um, I, my research fellowship was actually working with veterans, uh, justice-involved veterans, and I figured that okay, I could get a job in tech, I could get a job at a grocery store, I could get a job anywhere in Atlanta, and I also wanted to be in in the South. Um, so I just up and moved here and. I actually went to a meetup 
ladies at UX and I met somebody who was hiring basically a studio assistant, a design assistant. And starting there, I was able to get my foot in the door uh, and probably talking about the whole job search process is a completely, I don't know, that could be a 10 part series, basically how to get a job in UX and everybody's story is quite unique. And I think for me, I was able to use my skill set uh, that I got from my UX studies, my data viz studies, also just general skills that I had around like video editing, podcast editing. Uh, these sort of things culminated into basically a studio assistant role for me where I was for six months. And then I was able to get a bona fide UXR role. I will mention that it was an incredibly frustrating process. I view myself as still having the same research skills as I did in 2018. Uh, but when, without any sort of line of UX on your resume, I think it's difficult to get a first job. It's always difficult to get a junior role or a starting role in UX. But that's generally my journey, how I ended up in UX. It was honestly just a suggestion from a really good friend. Like you said, we talked about the job search process and the interviewing process for UX researchers. And we talked about that for a while, actually offline. And I know you mentioned this too a few moments ago. It's tricky trying to get your first UX researcher role. And that seems to be that seems to be a shared experience amongst UX researchers, right? And considering that you had this master's in ethnographic sociology, how did you market yourself as an ethnographic sociologist but you were applying for UX researcher roles. Like a lot of recruiters and hiring managers for UX researchers, they look for, like you said, they look for that UX research job title, right? So how did you market yourself in the market? How did you market yourself as a UX researcher, but you were an, eth but you were an ethnographic sociologist? Uh, yeah, so I had a lot of different titles for myself at different periods. At first, I was a content strategist, and then I was a UX researcher, and then I was a senior UX researcher, and uh, then I was lead, and now I'm a principal. That's my official title is principal UX researcher. I uh, Something that I decided early on was to not be what we hear in our industry is like a unicorn, right? I did not want to be that. I did not want to be working five jobs bundled into one salary. So early um, after my content content strategist position with the this woman who owns a UX studio, uh, I decided to very pointedly market myself as a researcher. I'm sure that is advice that I got from somebody along the line. So probably can't take credit for that. But that is a strategy that I advise other junior researchers on is do not try to be a designer and a researcher and a front end back end developer like all these things cannot exist in one role if you want to be effective and not exploited so at one point I just decided to very pointedly market myself as that as a researcher recently I was going through my wallet and I found some old business cards and there are some uh, in between titles that I'm always giving myself on my business cards. I just toss them all out. Like I refer people to my website now. Uh, but I think that for me, the key to success was being uh, dyed in the wool researcher. So marketing myself as that, like, look, I have this master's degree in research. You're going to hire me for research. I actually 
I actually said that to folks too, is that you don't want me to be designing because that's not what I'm good at. I'm better at being a team worker, team player, complimenting folks who have these skill sets. And it's just not me that you want. Actually, the first job I got um, in UX, first like salaried position I ever had in my life <laughs> actually was was as a senior UX researcher and the job posting, it was probably the 20th interview I had had that week. And I told the the hiring manager, look, this is a design yoked role with research. Uh, what do you guys actually want? Because you don't want me designing. And I was upfront about it. And my hiring manager, um, she has a PhD in neuroscience, uh, brilliant woman, Cheryl Bayanoza. And I think she appreciated that I was marketing myself very pointedly as a researcher. And I was ultimately hired into that role. Um, it was a contract role. And then I was hired into a full-time position after a couple of months. I think that the key with winning any argument is just to make a very clear argument and, and not say, oh, I can do these 10,000 other things. Just leaving that out and saying, look, you want me as a researcher. That was my approach. And that's what I advise others on as well. I want to emphasize that because quite a few of my listeners are aspiring UX researchers or more junior level junior level UX researchers. And I want to emphasize what you said, Babs, about being more pointed in your job search and also how you market yourself when you're applying for UX researcher roles. So you mentioned that you focused on presenting yourself as, as a UX researcher exclusively, as opposed to being a generalist or a unicorn that is a researcher and a designer and a content strategist. That's really important, being able to niche down and establishing, I, I hate the term personal brand, but I don't know what else to use, establishing your, your professional brand or your brand as a UX researcher and taking a clear stance on that. Because if people see that you have all these different experiences on your resume, that like you said, they may hire you and give you the role of UX researcher, but your actual job may consist of so many different things because that's what's on your resume. So like you said, it's important to take a clear stance as to what your brand is. And in this case, your brand is a UX researcher with this background in ethnography and sociology, and you do research, right? <laughs> so it's clear to, I wanted to emphasize that to my listeners, that it's really important to um, market yourself clearly and directly. But you had another challenge we talked about offline when you were applying for jobs is that people didn't really understand what you did as an ethnographic sociologist, right? So what was it like trying to explain what, what you did as an ethnographic sociologist to hiring managers and recruiters for UX researcher roles? So I've gotten, I've, I, I'm on my second role right now in UX um, with the same basic skill set, right? I have learned how to be successful in working with stakeholders in the UX industry. And I've definitely cut my teeth in surviving um, in, in sometimes very difficult corporate environments, right? So that is a skill set that I have developed along with my research skill set. Basically, the way that I marketed myself was an expert. Um, and as somebody, an expert, expert is a very uh, tedious title, frankly, but it is something that I do have as an advantage in my background is this is something that I have studied. I have particularly studied how to do um, ethnographic or how to conduct ethnographic research with vulnerable populations. So vulnerable populations, including, as I mentioned, justice involved veterans. So what is, what is it like working with somebody who is justice involved um, 
and how do you interview folks like this? How do you respect their anonymity? How do you respect their personhood? I also study the labor of professions, specifically um, custodians who clean buildings, like AKA janitors, but uh, custodians who clean buildings. And now I'm working at a company where I work with truck drivers, right? Who are also a type of um, blue collar working professionals. Uh, that is that is my expertise, and it is something that I have been able to um, find work in. Actually, it's it's been incredible that what I've studied in grad school, um, including the types of target populations that we're looking at, uh, how that can be an asset at my you know for me as a person, like having this background in sensitive, vulnerable research. Basically, where I see ethnographic sociology as benefiting user experience research specifically is an understanding people in context, like we talked about earlier. So the way that I would differentiate myself in an interview or that I have is that I'm interested in this population. I want to work with truck drivers specifically, and I am. Um, at Verizon, I was working with with business professionals. So that was a B2B setting. Verizon Connect makes business products. So I was, um, when I got the role, I marketed myself as being able to understand the labor of professions. So how do professionals see, them, see themselves? How do they achieve uh, expertise and professionalism in their work? It's a little bit meta, right? Because you're also doing the same thing as a sociologist. Like you're explaining your craft by explaining the craft of others. That's what a bit of uh, the labor uh, sociology of you know, labor sociology of professions is basically, so aside from the the, the target population interest um, and expertise there in my background, academic background, I think that, I think that being somebody who is trained in research can be an asset. Um, so with my background, I told, you know, I marketed myself as somebody who can see, we can see folks in context. So I try to avoid the term users, even though that is in my title, user experience, we're talking about users, right? But really users are people. So understanding users as professionals, as people who have goals outside using the product. I marketed myself as being able to look at somebody who is using our product as a full person, as a full professional, somebody achieving goals in their workplace, um, somebody who has needs with family time, these sorts of things uh, I studied and I was able to map it over into the UX context. So ethnographic sociology, I can observe people in context. I have training in that. Um, I do want to say that I think you can do this without going to grad school, uh, but for me, it, it is how I practice it. So I wouldn't be able to speak to learning these skills outside of my grad program where I did learn these skills. But basically being able to add insight to a product team where the product team's trying to understand, okay, what does this person's very complex life look like? Uh, what are they doing for fun? What do they do when they're not working? Um, what kind of professional aspirations do they have? Something that uh, here's, so as, a, as far as an example, something that I've done in my workplace is that we have, so Variant um, is who I work for as a principal UXR, the only uh, staff researcher currently. And we are looking at the kinds of rewards we could give uh, drivers as they ascend the ranks, right? So my background is a particular asset in this because perhaps on paper, you think a truck driver is a truck driver, right? Okay, 
truck driver drives trucks. Maybe they don't have professional aspirations. What I understand from my background um, in labor professions is that there are always professional aspirations, right? No matter what, even if we're talking about, about blue collar laborers, of course, people have professional aspirations. Um, so if you're a truck driver, perhaps later you can be on the operations team, you can be a manager, you can be a truck driver who manages other truck drivers, even, even unofficial titles like mentorship. Um, so somebody who has mentors is mentoring uh, within within the system of helping other professionals learn and supportive capacity. That is something that I added day one um, at, at my workplace is that is understanding that per, that truck drivers, even though they don't have some sort of title change like you and I might have as we uh, ascend the ranks of UX research, truck drivers are always moving um, upward if that's what they're pursuing. Right. So that background was an asset because it was something I was able to talk about day one, um, at, even though I'm a UX researcher, understanding the way that professionals live their lives. Um, and for me, that's that's the kind of work I probably will always be pursuing is working um, with professionals as our target, our target product users or as our target customers. That sounds very what you just described understanding your users as people you said you try to avoid the term users because well they're ultimately people right that sounded very jobs to be done ish <laughs> do you use jobs to be done a lot um in your career or in your work day whether it's at the current company you're at or at your previous employers do you use jobs to be done a lot it's definitely that is a framework i think that is um very accessible in in corporate america i think that's a, a framework that folks can read about and understand pretty quickly. And I do think that is it's very helpful, uh, especially with working with stakeholders. I think that the actual approach, so the steps of the approach, uh, whether it's ethnography, sociology, anthropology, even something like film studies, or uh, I have a friend who has an art background, right? Whatever the approach is, um, it, it, usually the framework is complementary. So like jobs to be done is related to the kind of uh, the labor of professions, right? And so to, to answer your question in short terms, yes, absolutely think it's very useful as a tool in the toolkit, so to say. So understanding um, the kinds of goals and aspirations that people have is very sociological and it is definitely related to the jobs to be done framework. And I will say jobs to be done is a super handy framework when you're working with people um, in, in our setting, right, at companies. If you're enjoying this podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and give it a five-star rating and a glowing review. Subscribe, follow. Many of you messaged me to tell me how much you like the podcast, but it's even better if you share it with your coworkers, mentees, and mentors on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and any other platform I forgot to mention. Spread the love. Don't keep me to yourself. <laughs> Also, if you are an aspiring or even a current UX researcher who needs help with your resume, interviewing skills, professional branding, cover letter, LinkedIn profile, and portfolio, consider applying for the Yizzy Research Coaching Program. In the rest of this episode, Bab talks about how empathy is applied and practiced as a UX researcher, how she researched products at Verizon that did not exist yet different expectations and experiences as a lead UX researcher, principal UX researcher, and UX researcher, and lastly, competence versus title versus seniority versus education and the tension between these in corporate America. And I have one last question about 
applying for jobs, before we move on to your actual work, um, you had mentioned earlier, empathy is a signaling term in terms of when you are actually applying for UX researcher roles, right? And following up with that idea at following up with that idea of empathy as a signaling term, how do you prove in an interview that you have empathy, right? How do you apply that? How do you practice that? That is an excellent question. It really is. And that's something that exact tension right there is something that led me to uh, really looking into this question of, because I was honestly, I was seeing everyone not everyone. I was seeing loads of people in my network signaling, I am empathetic. Uh, I'm people-centered. And I'm saying that in a bit of a flippant tone because it kind of is meaningless to me unless you can explain it, unless you can show work that proves that. Because otherwise, like you said, it's just a signaling term. Like it, it, It's a signaling term. What on earth does that mean? I think it's important to be able to explain that, right? So uh, two two parts of this here is that in my frustration of trying to understand what this term actually means, aside from basically getting hired by somebody who is like, oh, empathy, check mark, done. They're empathetic. They said they're empathetic. Uh, I say this also, my tone, I think, reflects the frustration of finding jobs that are good for you, right? So I think that when you're signaling your ethnograph, or sorry, when you're signaling that you're empathetic, how do you find an employer who is empathetic, who will honor that in you? Um, so I do market myself as somebody who studies empathy. Uh, some A class that I will totally recommend, a cohort that I am a part of, uh, is Vivian Castillo's Humanity Centered. Let's see. So how did I sh- demonstrate this in a, an interview context with job searching? Um, I de- It's tricky when you are talking about the work that you have done because some of it is um, covered by non-disclosure arrangements, right? So... I think where I would start with talking about empathy is my own study, my own master. So understanding the way that um, custodians build relationships amongst themselves in order to achieve status and power and resilience. So when you look at a building cleaner, perhaps you don't understand their complex lives, right? So I would hope that through my study that I spent many years in the field studying the way that custodians build relationships among themselves with people they view to be customers. This is where I uh, learned this methodology. And this is basically where I started understanding what empathy could be in practice. So empathy, I don't have a great definition for it, but empathy, I think it starts um, with decentering yourself as an expert, decentering yourself as somebody who knows what's going on. This is something that humanity centered, uh, the content there also covers. Basically, decentering yourself, first of all, and then and then using that the place of this person as an expert in their own lives, that is something I do at work all the time. So instead of us throwing something at a customer or a product user as, hey, do you like this? Yes or no. It's more like, hey, what are you trying to get done today? Or um, these are sort of examples that I might use in an interview of, here's, here's actually a good example of, um, we were trying to understand at work what kind of rewards would be satisfying for drivers. Um, and whether it was a vacation or not. So we had this idea of a particular type of vacation for drivers who are doing exceptionally well, right? And so the question was understanding what kind of vacation this driver wanted to go on. 
So the way that I would approach this question with empathy is not to say, do you want to go to Nashville or do you want to go to uh, Montreal? Really, the question is, what does a vacation look like for you? Um, and then through this approach of understanding what a vacation is more holistically, we were able to understand that there are actually barriers to folks taking vacations. So um, there are concerns about, do I have enough time off? Um, do I get to see my family? Something that truck drivers as, as a professional group deal with is being home enough, right? Being over the road, literally the job is driving, right? So truck drivers, instead of hopping for a vacation, perhaps they just want to see their family. So understanding that you are not correct necessarily in your frame, your framework of truck drivers want to be rewarded with a vacation. It's more like, what do rewards look like for drivers? Understanding that nuance, I think, for me is an example of how I might practice empathy of the, back to the point of decentering yourself. So decentering yourself like maybe you don't have the answers maybe your idea isn't correct and going to the population that you're trying to understand and letting them lead the conversation instead of like do you like this yes or no it's more like what do you like what are you looking for what kind of barriers do you have um when you're trying to access something right like what kind of barriers exist to this rewards program that we think is going to be awesome yeah, and I think you captured, I think you explained that very well, but you captured the struggle of the word empathy and how we as UX researchers and people who are aspiring UX researchers, how challenging it is to to convey that you're empathetic <laughs> in an interview without it sounding so forced and phony, right? And like you said, it can you have you have a degree of flippancy towards it because it, it's like, how do you show that, right? How do you show that you are people-centered? How do you show that you are prioritizing your users as people and not necessarily as users per se? That's really difficult. And I think you really you captured you capture what a lot of us, um, a lot of us UX researchers feel <laughs> about the word empathy. So I do want to pivot into your actual career path. And you're the day-to-day -day of um, your current role and your most recent role at Verizon. So when you were at Verizon previously, you were a product innovation research lead. How did you bring ethnography and sociology to that role? Well, firstly, I'll backtrack a little bit. Tell us more about what you did there as a lead at Verizon and then how you brought ethnography and sociology to that role. So as product innovation research lead, um, let me just explain that title a little bit. So I started um, at Verizon as a contractor for an innovation team based out of California. And that team, uh, basically that office was, uh, the office was, kind of dissolved, so to say. Uh, there are all sorts of political ways of saying that. <laughs> but essentially, basically two months after I got hired, um, we that office was closed and folks were expected to move into our other offices in like Atlanta or Boston or San Diego. So uh, that was based in a... Yeah, sorry. Um, so, so that office was dissolved and then I was looking around the organization for any sort of permanent role that... Um, I could occupy and the team, our team, the business innovation team, which was also the product innovation team, which is the product discovery team. Basically, this team that was based in Ireland focused on our uh, small and medium business. Um, we also did projects with enterprise customers and uh, government customers. 
So this team was hiring actually, and I did a small project with them. Uh, and then they ultimately hired me to be their research lead. So the reason I'm using research lead is that I was the only researcher on the team and I was directing the UX research um, and customer research. So that was a very interesting role for me because our products were non-existent, right? So how do you do research on a product that doesn't exist? For me, the answer was basically what I had been doing in grad school. Like, how do you understand the problem space for people that you're trying to uh, develop a solution for? The methodologies could be service design, uh, could be you know, product design, could be classic UX testing, um, like AB type of testing. So our team was an extremely small team. There were only three or four of us at first. And then we had a couple other hires towards the end of our existence there at Verizon Connect. Uh, the team was again dissolved in the fall of 2020, uh, and that's basically that was that concluded my time um, at Verizon Connect because that was what I was there for is doing this doing this type of research. So I have since moved on to a different company in a different role, um, but I would say that my background was an asset in that role because it was this very messy problem space. So we, our team would get these very large questions like, hey, what does it look like when to, you know, what does it look like? Let's see, that's a better way to phrase that. So let's see what I can actually talk about. <laughs> uh, so for, it's, it's tricky when you're doing future facing research because a lot of these products uh, are considered cutting edge, uh, are considered unique in the market. One example I can talk about. Um, so I personally was asked along with my research partner at the time, Thomas Lodato, who is now in Portland at Mozilla. Um, we, us two, we practice ethnography. So he has an HCI approach, more anthropological, I believe, human factors. And then for me, uh, with my sociology background, we were asked to take a look at what it would, what on earth it would look like for the company to offer business products in consumer stores. So the business part uh, of our business, the Verizon Connect Wing, has business products that were not sold in stores. Now I can talk about this because these products are now sold in stores. So they came to uh, the company came to Thomas and myself, and then uh, a friend of mine, a service designer, uh, Tim MacArthur, who is based in Ireland. So the three of us were able to do research in Verizon Connect stores. Um, and because Tim is a service designer, that was our framework for taking a look at this. So the question was, what does it look like to sell business products in stores? So that is not a testing environment. We don't have an A, there is no B, there is no framework basically for this. And so we approached this super messy problem space with this, with an ethnographic agenda basically was to figure out what on earth is going on, what kind of support do salespeople need, uh, what kind of payment structures are in place that could either hinder or support the selling of these products that are not actually Verizon wireless products, but rather Verizon Connect products. Is there a tension between those brand names uh, all of this is basically what we started with, and we were able to generate a design, um, an, I, generate a design idea, also basically explaining the problem space. So Thomas and I were adding to explaining the problem space. What kind of issues are inherent to this ask of, of selling business products in stores? So we did, a, we did a lot of field visits. This was a couple years ago before COVID. Um, and ultimately, we created a package of recommendations. So Tim, Thomas, and myself, and then we handed it off to uh, another service designer based in New Zealand, a friend of mine, Amelia Diggle, 
um, so who is also a service designer. So this is an example of a very collaborative project with the service design framework where ethnography was super helpful because Thomas and I and Tim as well, we were making observations to explain the problem space that they're working in. So we could go to stakeholders and say like, hey, so you haven't been on the ground. Um, you know, you haven't personally spent 36 hours talking to these people. We have here are our our observations. Here are the problems that we're encountering. Here are the barriers to the plan that you have. Um, another example where I was lead for this um, and versus like Thomas and Tim and myself. So I would I led a project for Verizon to take a look at the way that a particular type of vehicle might be represented in our product set that didn't exist. So vehicle types are like gas burning uh, vehicles, which would be ICE vehicles. You could have hybrid electric vehicles. Uh, perhaps propane or hydrogen cell fuel vehicles. They're all types of vehicles. And Verizon asked me, okay, how do we represent this particular type in our product? And it doesn't exist yet. So ethnography is really an excellent tool when you're trying to understand the squishy, messy space of what on earth is this situation? What are we looking at? And then it's it, basically you, uh, you explain explain kind of what you're seeing, right? You explain some dynamics, some tensions. I always look for tensions. Um, an example of a tension would be like when we're, when Thomas, Tim and myself were taking a look at the way that we we might sell these products, we identified a tension that the people we're asking to sell these products wouldn't actually get paid commission on them uh, as is. So how can we change that? How can we alleviate the tension that we see here is we're asking somebody to do something that doesn't benefit them, right? So that's an example of attention. Um, attention for representing different types of uh, vehicles inside a product group would be um, basically, so let's see, attention there would be, our company thought that these types of vehicles were very different, right? And then the, the people who were actually using the product did not see a difference in vehicle types. They just saw vehicle A, vehicle B, vehicle C. They're all my vehicles. I need to fuel and maintain all of them, right? So we had this bias that these vehicles are inherently quite different, whereas the people using the product uh, didn't see that. So there is a tension and perspective there. How can we overcome this with a well-designed product? So in both of those cases, overcoming tension with better product design. I definitely think it's a very collaborative approach. Um, I, as far as the funnel goes, I would be at the onset of understanding and describing the problem space. And then I would work with business designers, um, product designers to try to understand what kind of solution would best address these tensions that we're finding. So when you were at Verizon, you were a research lead, and now you are currently at a company called Variant as the principal UX researcher. However, in your past, you were also a senior UX researcher and a UX researcher. How were the expectations different at every level? So how are your expectations different as a UX researcher, as opposed to being a lead, as opposed to being a principal, as opposed to being a senior? It's an excellent question um, as well. I mean, all your questions, Izzy, are fantastic. But this one in particular, like this speaks to the frustration in job searching for me, which is um, hopefully a lot of you know, hopefully a lot of my time isn't spent looking for jobs. But um, when you are thinking about introducing yourself, um, usually your title comes first, right? So I am now principal UXR, despite having, <laughs> I don't know, I would consider a fairly short tenure in the field. I hope that my title speaks to my level of, um, of the quality of work that I do. 
So being able to achieve this sort of status, which actually is a sociological term as well. What does it mean to have this status in this role? So the role as researcher, right? My status as principal versus like, versus a UXR versus a senior UXR. What do these things mean? Uh, I think most of it, again, is signaling. So you're signaling, I have this level of expertise. I have this level of quality in my practice that I can bring to your company. Um, something actually that this reminds me of is related to like when we think about titles and advancement for truck drivers or people who might not have this like white collar classification of, of job performance, right? So ideally my title would speak to my level of quality of job performance. Um, I think in our field, like a, a principal would be considered quite competent in a certain range of activities, uh, capable of leading other people, of mentoring other people. I was doing all of this as a senior, right? And then I was doing all of this as a lead as well. Uh, frankly, titles are, I think, an introductory tool. It's like this person is generally at this level um, and you can expect to advance from there. Uh, it's kind of an unsatisfying approach, but as far as as far as the responsibility goes, your responsibility also increases with your status, right? Obviously. So now I am the only researcher. I don't have um, research partners. I don't have people to team up with. Um, I am running research. I'm very new in my role at Variant. I will mention, um, but they hired me for for a two-part role. So one is implementing research operations and complementing the UX. Uh, design operations. So that's some something I do, I think about 30% or 40% of my time. But that also complements um, and allows me to do my own research. So if you create a system of research operations, hopefully it becomes easier to do research. So these things go hand in hand. So Variant is a brand new company. Uh, I think the my colleagues who have been around the longest just have hit their one year mark or so. So it's it's quite a new, it's considered a startup uh, in the trucking company. Uh, and we are a um, machine learning led uh, company, right? So the, the classic trucking model does not apply to this company. We're very tech forward um, and tech centered. And we're, the idea is that variant is, is basically redesigning the way that, um, that trucking is managed, the way that trucking uh, happens, occurs, the way that truck drivers get loads and jobs. Um, so my title there as, as the first researcher is, I would hope that principle reflects the fact that I am the only one, that I am leading operations, I am leading uh, the actual research practice, I am doing all of this, I am the principal, right? I imagine that at other companies that have perhaps dozens or hundreds of researchers, like if that's a thing, I don't know anyone who has hundreds of researchers, that's just a pipe dream. Uh, but I would hope that that person would be in a similar position, right? Uh, it, it, I think it's really, it really depends on the company that you're at. But for me, with my responsibilities and my status, principle makes the most sense. However, I will say I'm still doing the same thing that I did in grad school years ago. So taking the same skill set, basically refining it, um, making it more scalable. I'm learning how to do research within corporate environments. Uh, all of this, I think, creates the title and the status, ideally, right? And then, again, it's it's mostly just signaling to, like, you know, my next job could be principal, or I don't know what comes after that, director or something. Um, mostly, it's a tool, uh, a communication tool to understand what this person is doing. Um, and it is, it's just scaling up, I think, the quality and scope of the work that you're doing, you know, from 
uh, from junior, I actually was, have never been a junior, but I went from UX researcher to senior to lead capacity to, um, to principal. And you mentioned, you touched on this a little bit earlier in our, in our conversation, you mentioned expertise, right? And you had, it was, you alluded to the fact that it wasn't really clear what made an expert an expert, right? And then you mentioned a few moments ago that you currently are a principal researcher, um, but you have a relatively short tenure in like the UX research space compared to other principals, right? So what is the difference between expertise and tenure? Like what's the relationship between the two, right? And how does that fit into job titles and career pathing as it pertains to UX research? That's a big question, but I'm just curious what you think about that. It's something that I feel very passionately about too. Um, And I think, again, unfortunately, it depends on the structure of a company. So addressing somebody's abilities and competence and even their levels of um, interpersonal interpersonal communications, right? That is not always honored in, um, in a title, in a capacity. I'm personally against the idea that if you work somewhere for 10 years, you get this title, irrespective of the fact that you might not be good at that work or that you might not, you know, you might not even be kind and generous or empathetic towards people. I think that a title, ideally in a utopia, a title would represent um, the person more accurately. In in previous roles, um, I have been frustrated by the fact that people have been working longer, so they are automatically afforded a different level of reverence, right, of responsibility, which does not all the time, does not always connect to their basic level of competence, right? How can, so my question is like, how can I be working with somebody who has the same title as me and I'm mentoring them and I'm, I'm teaching them the craft, like how did this happen? And it usually has to do with this idea that if you work for a certain number of years, that you automatically become better that you automatically have a level of competence it's kind of like when I was a kid I thought adults knew everything and then as an adult I'm like oh wait a second you actually have to work on being an adult you don't just automatically get this status of being like of knowing what you're doing or of being competent uh I remember (laughs) I I'm constantly surprised by people who have higher statuses and whatever whatever it is I do a lot of things um, I'm very active in sports. Um, I am active in our UXR field. Uh, I, I think that ideally for me, a title represents competence, not years of service, essentially. Um, that is not actually the case in the real world. Most of the time, I feel myself, I feel that I'm very lucky actually to be in a role of principal. Um, I, I think that variant um, saw me and I was exactly what they wanted and they were exactly what I wanted. I think that's very rare to find a very good match. Um, I've been very impressed with the company um, as far as the way that they practice their values or core values. Um, I'm very happy to be associated with this company as well. Uh, I think that the fact that I have principle was a show of respect from them, that they respect me and my level of competence and my interests and the way that I handle myself. But I think that for me, having a principal title, it, it really represents a relationship I have with my company, the long and the short of it. Um, I'm interested in a, 
in working for a company that respects your level of ability um, instead of that, you know, your level of, of years of service. I suppose with the academic background that I do have, and this would speak to other folks that might have PhDs or other higher education, I would make a very strong argument that those years should be considered years of expertise. So I mentioned uh, my previous manager, Cheryl Bayanoza, has a PhD in um, neuroscience or neuropsychology. I don't want to get that wrong. But I think all of those years should be counted towards her tenure as a UXR professional, as a manager. Um, I, While at Verizon, I uh, helped hire two um, friends of mine and individuals who have PhDs. Um, I think that that should be considered towards your tenure, right? Because it allows you to be the professional that you are. Um, and it speaks to your level of competence. And for me, um, if if I were to hire people, um, and eventually, hopefully I will hire other researchers at my company, I will definitely consider that instead of just years in the industry. I don't think that that means anything um, from an inherent level. And it's also interesting because I, like a lot of researchers, um, have had the experience. So I've I've done research since I was an undergrad in college. So I've done research. Research is all I've done for my professional life. I've done it for years. Um, but it's so funny because when I was applying for entry-level roles a few years ago, a lot of hiring managers and recruiters did not count my academic research um, as an undergrad, as relevant research. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's where I learned how to do research. That's legitimate. I worked, I was paid. I did interviews and focus groups. I wrote reports. I did data analysis. I worked with professors, et cetera, et cetera. Like this is legitimate research, but it was so frustrating that these professionals, these recruiters and hiring managers did not see it that way. And it always confused me as to why scholarly research or academic research doesn't really translate into industry for some managers and recruiters. I don't get that. Do you have any perspective? Again, this is another really big question. Why do you think that recruiters and hiring managers don't count academic research towards professional tenure as a UX researcher? Yeah, it's it's something, first of all, it's a struggle that I've had, right? And and again, I'll just say it again. I have the same skill set that I did as a grad student. And this is years later, and now I've had professional experience, but I have the same basic research skill set, okay? That is something that I recognize from personal experience, and that's something that I would want to practice when considering hires. Um, the two folks that I mentioned, my friends, um, you know, folks that became my friends, I hired them because they were excellent researchers. They handled themselves very well in interviews, and I had to fight against colleagues who said, oh, this is their first role. They're very green, and I was looking at their, what is, how many years of education, like almost 20 years of education? Like that is extremely valuable, right? And if it fuels the way that you lead yourself, um, the way that you think, your critical thinking skills, your ability to put together a very cohesive argument, right? That's what a PhD is. It's a humongous argument that you spend years collecting data to support. Um, I, I think to your point of this is the person's practice. This is where they learn the practice. Um, as, as far as people who don't recognize that, I think it comes from probably a place of misunderstanding. So I would wager that the people who do not consider academic experience as valid probably do not have that themselves. Um, I think, unfortunately, a lot of times when you're, you know, to the point of empathy, empathy comes from 
if not a place of recognition, perhaps a place of understanding. You don't have to understand a situation to be empathetic towards it. Of course, that is not required. It's almost impossible um, if that were the requirement to be empathetic towards other people, right? Because everybody's had a very different experience. But I think as somebody who's experienced higher ed um, and who has experienced the trials of getting a role with that, um, I think that because I understand it and because I believe firmly in it, I believed in myself and my ability. And then I had managers um, who were able to believe me as well. Like I mentioned, Cheryl, um, she has a PhD. She gets it. She understands what higher ed is. Uh, I think that also the idea of years of service or time in place is a bit of a vestige of manufacturing. If I were to make um, some you know, larger connections is that when you're in a manufacturing role, it's like you work there for 30 years, perhaps. I think in many ways, some companies um, that are tech companies or are not tech companies, a lot of these companies view view years of service and prestige and status in that way, uh, the same way that you might be in manufacturing. Um, that's one possibility. I honestly couldn't speak to the reason why. It's, I think it's it's probably local to whatever culture is as well as well so like um at verizon a lot of people there are extremely experienced in design um and i think that it is difficult when you are extremely experienced in design and industry to look at somebody who is a researcher with a very different background and understand the training that they have had right not saying that this is a design problem only i just think that in ux research specifically we don't have a great way of measuring the skill and capacity of researchers. And so we look at time and industry as a marker of success. Okay, you've managed to survive eight years as a designer. Maybe you can be a good researcher as well. I think the math, the mapping that doesn't happen so easily is how academic experience applies to the setting. Um, like, oh, this person's very green in the industry, but actually in practice, they are not green. They're quite experienced. This person has eight years, six years, two years. In your case, that's an undergrad. I also did research as an undergrad, which paved the way for my learning um, in grad school. I worked with the same advisor, in fact. I think that you have to have some experience or understanding or at least ability to connect academic training, training of the craft, right, as it applies to a corporate setting. I wanted to host Babs on the podcast because she is relatable. If you're a UX researcher, you can likely appreciate her comments and thoughts on the difficulties and challenges of securing your first UX researcher role. I really appreciate how Babs was able to find her own career path in her own way. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to take the listener survey on yesyresearch.com. Give this podcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And follow Yizzy Research on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll chat soon.